As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we have a collection of stories that mostly serve as footnotes to larger stories. Any good historian will tell you that the real gems are found in the footnotes, and I concur. It's sort of like finding the story behind the story, and the footnote often contains things we just didn't know about before. Before we begin, I'd like to thank all of you for your support this past year, which has been a year of terrific growth for us here at all the 1001 Stories Network shows. And that's all thanks to you. Between history and great classic literature, I'm convinced we have the smartest fans in the world. We certainly have the best. I think you'll find today's collection of stories very interesting. We begin in the year 1864. The scene was a crowded railway station in Jersey City. One of America's top actors was standing with the crowd on the platform. People were jostling for positions as the train applied its brakes and came rolling to a stop. As the people began to climb aboard the coach, the train unexpectedly jolted forward a few feet, causing one young man to lose his balance. The young man began to fall between the platform and the moving car, and would have been seriously injured were it not for a strong arm that grabbed him by the collar and pulled him back up to safety. Quickly regaining his composure, the would-be victim looked at the face of his rescuer and recognized him immediately. The young man would later write, His face was of course well known to me, and I expressed my gratitude to him, and in doing so, called him by name. It wasn't until nearly a year later that the two men recognized the irony of the moment. The actor was Edwin Booth, the brother of John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated President Abraham Lincoln on April 15, 1865. The young man was Robert Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son. Sergeant Bob Burns was a Marine sniper in World War I, and he was a pretty good musician. He organized the Marine Corps Jazz Band that became a favorite of General Black Jack Pershing and went on tours playing to troops all over Europe. One day, Burns placed a couple of pieces of gas pipe and a whiskey funnel together, and lo and behold, he had created a new instrument that looked like a cross between a trombone and a slide whistle. After World War I, Burns traveled around the country as a radio entertainer, 
telling tales of what it was like growing up in the Ozarks, and he took his instrument with him everywhere he went and performed with it, and it became so well known that by the late 30s and 40s, thousands of toy versions of that instrument were sold to kids all across the country. Have you guessed yet what it is? Well, Burns's instrument is no longer around, but its name lives on. In the early days of World War II, the Army was testing a new version of a shoulder-mounted anti-tank gun at Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland. The soldiers thought it bore a striking resemblance to Burns's invention, so they gave it the name that Burns had called it. The Army manufactured nearly half a million of them, and it became the most feared Allied weapon as far as German tank crews in World War II were concerned. They called it the Panzerschreck, meaning Tank Terror. Not long after World War II, a bubblegum company adopted the name, and they're still in business today. Bob Burns is just a footnote in history, but the name of his invention, the bazooka, proudly lives on. I'll never forget researching the story of Jacques Boulard for our double episode, All Blood Runs Red. As you fans might recall, he was a black kid who grew up in the South, lost his dad, and ran away to carve out his own life, ended up in France, where he joined the Foreign Legion in World War I, was wounded, and then became a pilot in the French Air Force, after which he became a nightclub owner in Jazz Age Paris in the 20s. In his stint as a nightclub owner and manager, he stayed in touch with numerous celebrities of the day, one of whom was Josephine Baker, and she was a story in and of herself. In my research, I found that he, Jacques Boulard, worked for the French underground as an informant in Paris in the years leading up to World War II, because at that time 17,000 or more Germans lived in Paris, and they were frequenting his club and his athletic gym that he built. They had no idea he could speak German, so conversation never slowed when he came near their tables. What I didn't learn through my research was that Josephine Baker was also a spy for the Free French Underground. She was a dancer, singer, and sex symbol in Paris, and her provocative dancing made her a star in the clubs of Paris with the Follies Bergère. In 1940, when war broke out in France, she offered her services to the French resistance. She told them Parisians have given me everything, especially their hearts. Now, she said, I will give them mine. When the Germans invaded Paris, she helped to hide resistance fighters at her remote chateau. She set up concerts in Lisbon in order to be able to transfer her information, which she wrote in invisible ink on the back of her music sheets, to the resistance. After the war, Charles de Gaulle awarded her the Legion of Honor and the Medal de Resistance for her efforts. And when she died, she became the only woman to receive a 21-gun salute in Paris. Today, the fact that she helped the French resistance is just a footnote in history. I wonder if Jacques ever told her, We'll always have Paris, Josephine. I have a hunch there's a movie waiting there somewhere. I'll title this next footnote, Revere to Dawes to Prescott to Bissell. Sounds like a triple play, doesn't it? On April 18, 1775, British troops marched out of Boston on a mission to seize and confiscate the American arsenal at Concord and to capture Patriot leaders Samuel Adams and John Hancock. The British called them seditionists and traitors. We Americans call them patriots today. As the British departed Boston, Paul Revere and William Dawes set out on horseback from the city to warn Adams and Hancock and rouse the Minutemen. They accomplished their mission, which was joined by a young patriot named Samuel Prescott 
and they were not only able to save Hancock and Adams from the rope, but alerted the entire countryside to take up arms against the British. As most of you know, Paul Revere's ride became legend in the poem Paul Revere's Ride by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1861, and Dawes and Prescott became footnotes, although in recent years their contributions are being widely recognized. Well, listen, children, and you will hear of a ride so fast and long it could have been a missile. That's right, the ride of young and bold, Israel Bissell. Soon after blood was spilled at the Battle of Lexington, the Massachusetts Provisional Congress issued a call to arms asking neighboring colonies for help. They chose a 23-year-old dispatch writer named Israel Bissell to take the news to as many colonies in the South as possible, and as fast as he could. He made Worcester, which was a full day's ride away, in two hours, killing his horse in the process. With a fresh horse, he raced through the state of Connecticut, spreading the news, then went on to New York, and then Philadelphia. He rode 350 miles in just four days and six hours, covering the trail from Watertown, Massachusetts, to Philadelphia, along the Old Post Road, shouting to arms to arms the war has begun, and carrying a message from General Joseph Palmer, which was hurriedly copied at each of his stops, and distributed by the local presses. And by the way, Marie Lockwood wrote the epic poem, Ride Israel Ride, to immortalize Bissell's contribution. But his name has never risen to the status of Paul Revere's, or even the Bissell vacuum. Just another footnote in history. Few people know it, but the Frisbee is as American as apple pie. Well, sort of. It does have UFO origins. When a couple of UFOs came apart near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, Launching a UFO craze that's still going strong today, California inventor Walter Frederick Morrison, sensing an opportunity, designed a toy that could fly like a UFO. He and a pal made some plastic replicas, called them flying saucers, and started selling them around the college campuses and beaches. Sales were okay, but nothing big. Morrison, undeterred, went back to the drawing board and designed an even better flying saucer, which he called the Pluto Platter. That became a hit with the college kids, and that's how the famous toy company Whammo found it. Whammo had the means for production and distribution, and the Pluto Platter became a hit. When one of the founders visited Yale to push their new Pluto Platter discs, he discovered some students throwing pie tins around and asked them what they called them. As it turns out, there was a pie company with a fleet of 200 trucks that were kept busy by delivering over 8,000 pies a day, and the pie tins they came in flew pretty well. The company was named after its founder, William Russell Frisbee, and it was located on Cosseth Street on Bridgeport's east side. The trucks had Frisbee pies emblazoned on them. Whammo had been searching for a better name, and the name Frisbee sounded pretty good, so they changed the spelling in the name Frisbee, and a legend was born. As the story goes, Frisbee pies sold out in 1958, but it was reborn again in 2016 when an avid Frisbee player named Dan O'Connor restarted the company, which still makes great pies using the old recipe. And there's a really cool footnote to this footnote story. In Back to the Future 3, Marty McFly saves the life of Doc Brown by throwing his newly discovered Frisbee pie plate at gunman Buford Mad Dog Tannen, foiling Mad Dog's attempt to shoot Doc Brown. The Frisbee became famous and will likely stay that way for years to come. 
Frisbee's pies, once relegated to footnote status, are back, thanks to Dan O'Connor. The Pluto platter is, and will likely stay, a footnote for a long time to come. We'll return to our show right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now, back to our show. The burning of the Reichstag stays pretty much an undiscovered footnote, with the exception of historians who specialize in the Nazi rise to power in Germany in the late 30s. But the burning of the Reichstag has an interesting footnote story. An eyewitness provided this account of Hitler's reaction to the burning of the Reichstag, which was the parliament building in Germany, where the newly elected Chancellor Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party were looking for an opportunity to seize the majority of political power in 1933. All it would require was the right spark at the right time. On the evening of the 27th of February, 1933, in Berlin, Adolf Hitler was enjoying dinner with his propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, when the phone rang and news was delivered that the Reichstag was on fire. Hitler and Goebbels raced to the scene, and there they met Hermann Goering, who instantly said, This is a communist outrage, forever branding the event as a communist party attack. It may well have been, as a Dutchman named Vanderloob was to confess at a trial later that he had done it, and was soon put to death by guillotine, along with other communist leaders that were rounded up. But it's still believed by some to this day that the attack was organized by undercover Nazis, and that Vanderloob was the fall guy. Within just hours after the attack, Hitler, using the burning of the Reichstag as an excuse to exercise power, had ordered all political opposition to be suppressed or done away with, at the same time seizing the reins of power in Germany. Hitler was quoted to have said, while at the scene, This is a God-given signal. If this fire, as I believe, turns out to be the handiwork of communists, then there is nothing that will stop us now from stomping out this murder pest with an iron fist. Well, he didn't wait for a trial, and he didn't limit his wrath to just communists. The fire became Hitler's springboard for unleashing total power, totalitarianism in full gear. Massive amounts of troops were stationed in and around Berlin. Free speech was blotted out, and anyone who opposed the grab for power was singled out for destruction. There is an eyewitness account which exists as a footnote in some books about the event. The eyewitness D. Sefton Delmer was standing with the group of Nazis that had entered the building. He wrote, After about 20 minutes of fascinated watching, I suddenly saw the famous black motor car of Adolf Hitler slide past, followed by another car containing his personal bodyguard. 
I rushed after them and was just in time to attach myself to the fringe of Hitler's party as they entered the Reichstag. Never have I seen Hitler with such a grim and determined expression. His eyes, always a little protuberant, were almost bulging out of his head. Captain Goering, his right-hand man, who was the Prussian Minister of the Interior and responsible for all police affairs, joined us in the lobby. He had a very flushed and excited face. "'This is undoubtedly the work of communists, Herr Chancellor,' he said. "'Are all the other public buildings safe?' Hitler questioned. "'I have taken every precaution,' answered Captain Goering. "'The police are in the highest state of alarm, "'and every public building has been specially garrisoned. "'We are waiting for anything.' "'It was then that Hitler turned to me,' writes Delmer. "'God grant,' he said, "'that this is the work of communists. "'You are witnessing a new epoch in German history.' This fire is the beginning. And then something touched the rhetorical spring in his brain. You see this flaming building? He said, sweeping his hand dramatically around him. If this communist spirit got hold of Europe but for two months, it would be all aflame like this building. The day after the fire, Hitler issued the Reichstag fire decree, which suspended all civil liberties in Germany and immediately began a ruthless purge of known and suspected communists which included rounding up all the Communist Party delegates in Parliament and sentencing them to imprisonment or death. With the competition gone, Hitler was able to consolidate power and took over the majority in Parliament. There was no one left to stop him. Rounding up communists was only the beginning, however. The rounding up of Jews and political opponents began in earnest. After the Reichstag fire, Hitler began to quickly dismantle the Weimar Republic, dissembling the Lutheran Church, and immediately instigating brutal persecutions of Jehovah's Witnesses and the leaders of the Catholic Church. A special priest's barracks were later established at Dachau concentration camp for clergy who opposed his regime. The Bible and the Christian cross were soon transformed into Nazi swastikas. And that leaves us, as readers, wondering how, within minutes of the setting of the fire in the Reichstag, how Captain Goering was able to have men positioned at all the public buildings within minutes, how Hitler was able to decide within seconds who was guilty long before any trial or investigation, and how Hitler was immediately able to create a decree to lock down Berlin and round up all dissenters and place it in motion within hours. That he had pre-planned it and then waited for, or actually created, the right opportunity is the only logical answer. Propaganda Minister Joseph Goebbels put the immediate clamps on the free press and they either praised his tactics or disappeared. That was to last until May 1st, 1945, when Goebbels committed suicide, carrying the responsibility for the deaths of millions of Jews, political opponents, and innocents with him. You already know the rest of the story. The Reichstag fire is just a small footnote in history, but it was the spark that enabled a totalitarian regime to murder millions and enmesh the world in a long and terrible war. This is a fascinating footnote which serves as a companion story to the last one. One of Hitler's top men had acquired an ancient German castle near the city of Munchengladbach named Schloss Gret. Unfortunately, the owner couldn't be there to greet the arrival of the U.S. Ninth Army and its team of war correspondents in March of 1945, as he was busy in Berlin trying to fire up the last remaining German soldiers, who were mostly old men and young boys, bound to die for the honor of the Fuhrer defending their homeland. The war correspondents could barely believe their luck at being put up in a castle, complete with a moat and a drawbridge, 
and a huge fireplace and dining room with local chefs serving the best wines and meats. Large-colored portraits of Hermann Goering and other Nazi top dogs decorated the walls. And the beauty of the place couldn't be denied. On that first night in Castle Schlossrecht were men named Gallagher and Henry Griffin of the Associated Press, Gordon Gamak of the Des Moines Register Tribune, and Doc Jones of the Boston Globe, and they were very impressed to be given the castle's largest and most prestigious bedroom, which had been occupied by the Nazi owner when he was last in residence. Here they were, four American journalists, who then embodied the concept of a free and fair press, and they were now sleeping in the bedroom of German propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who for 14 years had put a clamp on most of Europe's print, film, art, and media, using it instead to distribute his own party propaganda, which included attacks on churches, attacks on morality, attacks on Jews, and attacks on the citizens of subjugated countries. The irony can't be denied. Today, Schlossrecht is just a footnote in history. We know that the Romans entertained themselves for centuries killing animals and men, and their favorite place for this entertainment was the Colosseum, in front of 50,000 cheering men and women. At the height of this insanity, the Roman Emperor Titus ordered 9,000 wild animals to be slaughtered during a 100-day festival to honor the opening of a new Colosseum. That elevated quickly to mass killings of men who were either captives from war or criminals and political prisoners. Yet for some reason we still praise Roman society today. Nearly 1,500 years after all that ended, however, and the Enlightenment occurred, the glorious city of London, in 1710, was still enjoying watching animals, if not men, tearing each other apart. This footnote was found while researching life in London in 1710. It's an eyewitness account of bull baiting penned by Zacharias Conrad von Uffenbach. I came across this one day when I was researching for a story I was writing about Captain John Smith. The eyewitness testimony goes like this. And for parents out there, this is explicit. Toward evening we drove to see the bull baiting which is held Toward evening we drove to see the bull baiting which is held here every Monday in two places. On the morning of the event, the bull, or any other creature that is to be baited, is led round. The event takes place in a large open space or courtyard on two sides of which high benches have been made for the spectators. First, a young ox or bull was led in and fastened by a long rope to an iron ring in the middle of the yard. Then about thirty dogs, two or three at a time, were let loose on him, but he made short work of them, "'goring them and tossing them high in the air "'above the height of the first story. "'Then, amid shouts and yells, "'the butchers to whom the dogs belonged "'sprang forward and cut their beasts "'right side up to break their fall. "'They had to keep fast hold of their dogs "'to keep them from returning to the attack without barking. "'Several had such a grip of the bull's throat or ear "'that their mouths had to be forced open with poles. "'When the bull had stood it tolerably long, "'they brought out a small bear "'and tied him up in the same fashion. "'As soon as the dogs had at him, he stood up on his hind legs and gave some terrific buffets. But if one of them got at his skin, he rolled about in such a fashion that the dogs thought themselves lucky if they came out safe from beneath him. But the most diverting and worst of all was a common little donkey who was brought out saddled with an ape on his back. As soon as a couple of dogs had been let loose on him, he broke into a prodigious gallop, for he was free, not having been tied up like the other beasts, and he stamped and bit all round himself. The ape began to scream most terribly for fear of falling off. If the dogs came too near him, he seized them with his mouth and twirled them around, shaking them so much that they howled prodigiously. 
Finally another bull appeared, upon whom several firecrackers had been hung. When these were lit, and several dogs let loose on him of a sudden, there was a monstrous hurly-burly. And thus was concluded this truly English sport, which vastly delights this nation, but to me seemed nothing special. No wonder so many people in England wanted to come to America. This was London in 1710, and bull-baiting remains just a footnote in history. I must be in a mood today, only seeing the darkest side of mankind, from witnessing the rise of totalitarianism with the Nazi party to bull-baiting in London. So I'm reaching for something to restore my faith in mankind. Is there an evil side to all of us? A side that wants to completely shut down all free speech and just cancel the opposition? Just put them all in camps where they can be deprogrammed? Fortunately, only a very sick few believe in that. But that's what author William Golding, who wrote the 1964 classic Lord of the Flies, believed. His view of human nature was definitely depressing. I've always understood the Nazis, Golding once confessed, because he admitted, I'm of that sort by nature. And it was partly out of that same self-knowledge that Golding wrote The Lord of the Flies, a story of a group of boys who were marooned on an island, and as the story goes, the experience didn't go well. In fact, it was barbaric. Three of the boys in Goldman's story ended up dead. But Golding was an alcoholic and prone to depression. Maybe he drew the story from his troubled childhood. But that was fiction. How would a group of young boys really fare if left stranded on an island for a long period of time? The answer exists in a footnote to an obscure blog that begins with the headline, One Day Six Boys Set Out From Tonga On A Fishing Trip. The story by Rutger Bregman to follow was printed in The Guardian in May of 2020, and I will paraphrase it. He discovered a headline that announced a film showing for Tongan castaways, six boys who had been found three weeks earlier on a rocky island south of Tonga, which is an island group in the Pacific Ocean. The boys had been rescued by an Australian sea captain after being marooned on the island of Atta for more than a year. The captain, whose name was Peter Warner, had found a TV station that was willing to film a documentary, actually a reenactment of the boys' adventure. Bregman was full of questions. He dug deeper and found another article stating, Deep in a banana plantation in Tallura, near Lismore, sit an unlikely pair of mates. The elder is 83 years old, the son of a wealthy industrialist. The younger, at 67, was literally a child of nature. Their names? Peter Warner and Mano Total. As history goes, Warner was cruising the Pacific when he came upon a deserted island in the Tonga group called Atta. It had been deserted since 1863 when a slave ship appeared on the horizon and sailed away later with all the natives. Since then, Atta had been cursed and forgotten. Warner anchored off of Atta and soon saw a boy swimming out to the boat. My name is Stephen, he said. There are six of us, and we've been here for 15 months. Soon the other five boys reached the boat, and their story came out. They were students at a boarding school at, at Nuku'alofa, the Tongan capital. Sick of school meals, they said, they decided to take a boat out fishing, but they got caught in a storm. At that point in the story, Captain Warner paused and used his radio to call the school, telling them, Hey, I've got six kids here who say they were students at your school. I found them on a deserted island. The voice on the other end was incredulous. You found them. Those boys have been given up for dead. Funerals have been held. If you found them, it's a miracle. Later the rest of the story came out. 
Six boys, Stephen, Sion, Colo, David, Luke, and Mono. And this time, it was the true story. They were bored out of their minds in school. They borrowed, meaning stole, a fisherman's boat. They wanted to head for Fiji, which was 500 miles away. They packed two sacks of bananas, a few coconuts, and a small gas burner. The oldest was 16, the youngest 13. They had no map and no compass. When they left, there was only a mild breeze. When nightfall came, they all fell asleep, but they woke up to a terrible storm. They hoisted the sail, which immediately broke, and then the rudder broke. They drifted for eight days without food or water. They tried catching fish, but had no luck. They shared their water equally until it ran out. They spotted an island and swam for it. Captain Warner would later write in his memoirs, They set up a small commune with a food garden, hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater, built a gymnasium with curious weights, set up a badminton court, chicken pens, and a permanent fire, all from handiwork, an old penknife, and much determination. They agreed to work in teams of two, drawing up a strict roster that included garden, kitchen, and guard duty. Sometimes they quarreled, but whenever that happened, they solved it by imposing a timeout. Their days began and ended with song and prayer. Colo fashioned a makeshift guitar from a piece of driftwood, half a coconut shell, and six steel wires that were salvaged from the boat, and he played it to lift their spirits, and their spirits needed lifting. All summer long it hardly rained, leaving them very close to full dehydration. They tried building a raft, but it fell apart in the crashing surf. One day Stephen fell from the cliff and broke his leg. Then others picked their way down after him and fashioned a splint using sticks and leaves. Don't worry, Sion joked. We'll do your work while you lie there like King Talfu Ahau Topu himself. They survived on fish, coconuts, and tame birds. Seabird eggs were also enjoyed. In time they exploited and found live chickens inside an old volcanic crater. They had been abandoned for a hundred years and had multiplied. The boys were rescued on Sunday, September 11, 1966, and brought back home, where the police, upon their arrival, jailed them for stealing Mr. Uhila's boat, and he had pressed charges. Peter then called Channel 7, and when he paid Mr. Uhima 150 for his boat, he dropped the charges. When the boys were released, the entire island came out to welcome them home. Peter was treated like a national hero. King Tofa'ahu IV himself invited the captain to his home and asked him if there was anything he could do for him. Warner answered, I'd like to trap lobster in these waters and start a business here one day. The king gave his okay. But first Warner wanted to travel. He hired all six boys to crew his boat while he sailed the world. Not a bad ending to this story. Just another footnote from history. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did in putting it together. If you did, please tell a friend about our show and about all our 1001 shows. We share some great short stories at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and you'll be amazed at how many really good short stories are out there. Some of my favorite authors, Jack London, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, H.P. Lovecraft, Lucy Maud Montgomery, Ambrose Bierce, and many others. We do short stories there at 1001 Classic Short Stories, as well as at 1001 Ghost Stories and 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories. And we do long-format stories, like The Return of Tarzan and The Great Gatsby, which are playing now at 1001 Stories for the Road, 
and 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Check them out and broaden your literary horizons. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.